welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Wow. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, team, for having me here. Um, Before I got up, Julian said, say something about your beautiful husband. (laughs) My husband is beautiful. Um, Julian and I are so thrilled to be amongst family this morning. Um, Just to say, um, I don't normally sound this croaky. We have been playing hard this week. And so um, thank you, Garden Church, for hosting us so well. Um, So apologies for my croaky voice, but I trust that it won't distract too much and that we'll hear from Holy Spirit this morning. Um, Yes, Julian and I and our two wonderful, wild children um, have been here in Long Beach for the last week and just... Um, really feeling the kindness and goodness of God through um, community, through the body of Christ. You guys um, have so welcomed us here, and I'm just so grateful. It was such a joy to be with some of the women on Wednesday evening and see what God is doing in your community. I'm really excited this morning because um, I always know when I'm not at my strongest, God's going to show up the best. Um, how many of you really believe the verse that says his power is attracted to our weakness? (laughs) That his strength is shown in our weakness. It's a verse in the Bible. And I think sometimes we read verses like that and we think that's a great verse, but we don't actually like feeling weak. So we hope we never have to test whether it's true or not. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you mean. Some of you are like, absolutely, that's me. I'm the latter. I I thank you, Jesus, that your strength is sufficient, that your grace is here. Thank you that your power is made known in my weakness, but I'd really rather not feel weak. But you know what? Right now, my voice isn't that strong. And we're going to need the power and the presence of God because I'm trusting that this morning you didn't come for some information from me, but you've come hungry for an encounter with God. That's why I've come. I want to meet with him even as I speak to you from up here. I I want to meet with him. None of this morning will be worth it. None of the program, none of the scheduling, none of the volunteering, none of the any of it will be worth it without the presence and power of God in our midst, right? And so I know we've done this already, but let's just quiet ourselves before him for a moment. And let's just say, Holy Spirit, we want nothing but your presence this morning. We will not be satisfied with eloquent phrases or anything else. We want to see you, God. We want to meet with you. We want to feel your presence in this place. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that your presence would be felt tangibly in this place as I speak in Jesus' name. This morning, I want to talk about a God who is passionately willing, not just a little bit willing, not just some moments, not just maybes, but a God who is 
passionately willing. And we're going to read together Matthew 15. I'm actually going to read most of this chapter and then we're going to focus on the middle section. But I think the whole chapter will be helpful for context. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus, Matthew 15, from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Ouch. We could spend all morning on that one verse, a good question for the body of Christ, I think that we would weigh up whether what we do is really in step with what Jesus would do or whether we have grown so accustomed to our culture and our traditions and our way of doing things that we're equating morality with our preferences rather than looking at the face of Jesus and following his footsteps. But that's not what I'm preaching on this morning. For God commanded, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Ah, clever way to sidestep something inconvenient. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him. And he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. He's talking about the religious traditions they had again. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? I love the disciples' questions. I think he knew. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the important bit. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, a woman who was to be seen as the enemy of Israel from that region, came out and was crying, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there, walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. This is a, it's an interesting chapter. Don't mind me as I rearrange the furniture. It's got some really hard parts to it, some places and verses that we might not like to read because we don't quite know what to do with them. What do we do with Jesus' silence? What do we do with Jesus calling a woman a dog? These are owie verses. They're really difficult. But I I want us to camp on these verses because I think actually if we spend time really wrestling and grappling with what is being said here, we will come face to face with a God who is passionately willing to meet with us with his mercy and kindness. A a God who is unwilling to send the hungry away. A God who is wanting to meet with us and confront our deepest beliefs about who he is and what kind of personality he has and what kind of character he has and whether there is a hidden mean streak that we might find in him. Because many of us read these verses and we think, oh wow, that's That's a mean streak in Jesus. I I better be aware of that. Next time I'm needing help, I better be aware that maybe there's a little trap door in his character that if I lean too hard, too desperately, I might find myself falling rather than being caught. And yet I believe these verses are here to confront our deepest beliefs because he's wanting to show himself to us as a God who is full of compassion, a God who is full of passionate willingness to meet us in our place of need. And actually in these verses, and that's partly why I read wider than what I'm going to really land on today, but in these verses we see a contrast between the heart of God and the heart of those who would say they follow God. And I believe that this morning God wants to minister to two different groups of people, really. He wants to minister to those of us who feel desperate, who feel hurting, who feel like we're knocking and knocking and no one's opening and we're starting to struggle with the heart of God. But I believe He also wants to minister to those who are claiming to represent him, but in fact, we have a hardness of a heart towards the suffering of others that totally betrays a lack of belief in Jesus. 
this is going to be fun. <laughs> I promise it's going to be good. <laughs> so let's just focus. Jesus, he's speaking to disciples. And then we see that in verse 21, Jesus goes away. He's, he's in the region with the Jews and he's talking to them and he's teaching with them. And there's disciples and Pharisees everywhere. But he actually intentionally draws away and he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, that's in verse 21. And then if you jump down to verse 29, you'll see Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So what happens is in just those few verses, Jesus goes to this region, meets a woman and then leaves a region. It's almost as if he intentionally wanted to meet her. There's no other reason for him to be in that region. There's no reason for him to enter Canaanite territory. There's no reason he doesn't do anything else there unless he's gone a little bit crazy and decided he wants to go for a very long walk nowhere and then come straight back again. There's an intentionality that we're being confronted with even as it seems like just by chance he stumbled across this woman. That should signal to us straight away that Jesus went finding her when she thought she was looking for him. That's really important for us to recognize because in moments when we're crying out to God, we might feel like his back is turned to us. And yet I wanna suggest to us that he's the one kneeling, coming close even before we've started crying out. He finds her. And she comes out to him and she says to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about this woman's suffering, this family's brokenness. I have a five-year-old daughter. I can't even begin to imagine as a parent watching your daughter in utter helpless brokenness. This woman comes to Jesus, she's desperate. She comes to him and she's believing. She's come to, coming to him with a faith and uh, there's something this woman has to teach us today about faith. This Canaanite woman, supposedly an enemy of Israel, she has something to teach us much more than the disciples do. She comes to Jesus with a belief in who he is, not standing on who she is. Notice that she doesn't come to him with some kind of, this is what I've got, or this is what I've done, or this is what I've earned, or this is somehow the morality that seems to be good enough here or this is my merit or this no what does she say have mercy on me son of David she's not coming standing on her merit she's coming standing on his mercy Julian and I are finding it so much fun raising our kids we are learning so much about ourselves about humanity in general and uh it really is a joy and delight. But we've noticed recently that as we discipline one of my children, I won't say which, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say stories like this soon because they'll care. Right now, they don't care. In fact, right now, they're like, yes, talk about me more. They won't mind. But 
disciplining one of our kids who has fully adopted the gospel message that we who are now in Christ are powerful. We are new creations. I am a child of God. And so when we discipline this child, uh, once in a while, we might get a reply, which is, you can't tell me what to do. I'm powerful. God bless my children. <laughs> you know, once in a while when I'm in Christian settings or once in a while when I'm weighing up my own heart, honestly, we can approach God in that way. We start praying prayers that are not thoroughly based on his mercy, but start getting into a place of entitlement as if you made me powerful, so come on then. Maybe it's just me. But I, I feel even that God is wanting to address in the body in these days, that his children aren't to be entitled that he didn't give us the presence and power of the spirit so that we strut our stuff and base our prayers and base our intercession on who we are, but rather we come into a fuller and deeper understanding of his mercy. She didn't come to him with a list of why he owed her or why he should or why whatever. She came with one thing, an understanding of his mercy. That's all she had. That was her entire argument. This is no negotiation. This is please be merciful. She's coming to him with an understanding of his character. And I believe God is inviting us to come to him today with an understanding of his character, but he's wanting to show us what he's really like so that when we approach him, we'll come confidently to him. So she says to him, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed. But he didn't answer her a word. Wow. I don't think I can ever remember another time in the New Testament where Jesus simply ignores somebody. I can't even think I might be wrong. I, I, I didn't do the full research on this by reading th through the entire New Testament. So, but I, I can't remember a time even when he's speaking to the Pharisees who are irritating the life out of him for him to just ignore them. What's going on here? He meets a woman with utter, utter brokenness and just such desperation. Is this what God is like? Some of you are feeling exactly like this is what God is like. That you're feeling like at the moment you're praying and you're asking and you're desperate and you're saying I'm broken and you're getting nothing and it's like silence, like a brick wall is between you and heaven and you're like, what is wrong with you? Why won't you just speak to me or answer my prayers? This passage is for you today because he says absolutely nothing to her and I believe he does it because he's allowing the deepest beliefs about who he is to be drawn from her heart and who else is present in this moment to be drawn by the from the disciples hearts the thing is 
When God stays silent, we fill the silence. What do we fill it with? Sometimes we think silence is a rebuke. I don't believe it is. I believe he's just giving you space long enough to see what will come out of you. What will come out of me. And just before you think that I'm preaching this because I've got this all buttoned up and I'm really great at this and oh, you guys aren't very spiritual, but I've got this all down. I just want to say to you that last, in the last couple of weeks when our house flooded and we've been living in a crazy situation, what came out of me in that moment wasn't God's got this, but was what on earth do you think you're doing? And some other words that we won't say here. The point being, I'm not preaching this because somehow I have uh, such an ability to levitate above the ground and live in these truths permanently. I'm preaching this because I'm walking out the reality of trying to wrestle with the heart of God in the same way that I know you are. But I am convinced, especially when I read this story, that the silence isn't a hardness in his heart. The silence is simply giving opportunity for the deepest beliefs to be, to come to the surface. He's just giving them a moment. In this moment, Jesus is honoring introverts everywhere who just need a little bit longer of a breath gap. He's just allowing what they think to come out. And what comes out is the question. He doesn't say a word, so the disciples, oh, helpful, helpful disciples, decide to fill the gap. They come and they beg him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. If you look in the Greek, the word there, send her, it it, it actually doesn't mean necessarily that they were saying, don't give her the miracle. It wasn't necessarily that they were saying, just tell her to go away. The Greek actually has kind of like an inference that they're basically saying, fulfill her wish so she'll just go away. Now, I want us to think about this for a second. They are not moved by the brokenness of this woman. They're not asking him to fulfill her desire because they can see that she's living in literally a living hell. They are moved by the fact that she's annoying to them. I find this so provoking as a follower of Jesus. Why do I pray for people? Why do I ask for miracles to happen? Why do I pray for the sick? Why do I minister to people? Why do I preach? What is it that I am moved by? Is it a desire to have a great story to tell somebody? Is it a desire to cultivate a platform so that people will know my name? Is it a desire that that I might be seen as someone who operates in power because we're suddenly living in a day and age where the gifts of the Spirit are being used as a hierarchy of who is more significant in the kingdom than somebody else? What is our motivation for asking Him to move? What is my motivation for asking him to move? 
His disciples who lived with Him day and night, they see someone in such horrific suffering that you would never wish on anybody. And yet they're not moved by compassion. Their prayer isn't motivated by, please be merciful to her. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Their prayer is, she's so annoying, silence her. What is true of our communities? What is true of our hearts? I pray for our community in Boston that we would be moved by compassion, not by any other reason to see God fulfill his word. And I pray the same for you. That as a community, as you pray, as a community, as you minister, as a community, as you pray for the kingdom to come, your motivation wouldn't be, wouldn't it be cool if we were so powerful or if we saw this or if we, but that you're moved by compassion. I want to be a woman consumed by compassion when I see people suffering. So they fill the silence. And what they fill it with isn't the most inspiring. He answers them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is getting weirder and weirder because in this story, we're seeing Jesus on a surface level, acting more and more callous in a way that you don't see him elsewhere, certainly not with the broken. He's been silent. We've explained that. Now he's kind of being really exclusive and mean. This woman is there. Come on, you've got the power. Just do something, help her out. But he's still trying to draw belief out. You know, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, isn't my circumstances, isn't, where I find myself isn't what's happening to me. The most important thing, the thing that will entirely define my life is my deepest belief about him. That's why he's not in a hurry to resolve situations until he can show you your deepest beliefs. Because that's the thing that will define your life much more than an immediate solution to an immediate problem. Your deepest belief about him will change everything, not just the solution to this. So in this moment, he is drawing from her, drawing from the disciples, deep beliefs, both with his silence and with his sparring with her, which we're going to look at in a second. But that's what he's doing for each of us in our circumstances. Sometimes we're wondering, why isn't he working fast enough? Does he not care? And I want to suggest he cares much deeper than we do. He understands that unless he draws out toxic beliefs from inside our hearts, no matter what problem is resolved in that moment, we will keep walking in brokenness. He is interested in drawing out what do you think he is like? He's playing a game, not that it's fun. He's playing something incredibly serious for her benefit and for the disciples too, and for ours. I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him. I love her faith that just makes her keep coming back, keep coming back. I feel like that's an invitation to us. 
you didn't like the first time, keep coming back, keep coming. Don't let the delay, don't let the silence, don't let the confusion offend you. Come back again, come back again. Be convinced of his heart beyond your immediate offense. But we'll talk about that in a second. She came and knelt before him saying, again, it's not long-winded. It's not a whole thesis on why. It's very simple. Lord, help me. I've got nothing else to bring. Sometimes we feel like we need We're trying. We're trying to get God's attention for something. We're trying to get him to listen to us. We're trying to get him to answer our prayer. And when it doesn't happen, we become more and more long-winded, more and more convoluted, more and more trying to find anything. Maybe he needs more from me. No, no, no. Let's learn from this woman. He doesn't need complexity from you. All he's drawing from you is hunger and need. He's saying, come back, come back with your hunger. Your prayer doesn't need to be 10 times longer the second time around for it to work. I laugh sometimes when we're training people in the ministry of healing, because how many of you know that if you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you've been commanded to lay hands on the sick and see them healed. That's not for the special Christians. That's not for the ones with a special gift. That's for every believer. And so Julian and I often do training for people just really simple. If someone is sick and you're a follower of Jesus, you get to say to them, what's wrong? Put hands on them, say in the name of Jesus, be healed. It's very simple. Honestly, I promise, there's mystery to healing. I don't want to downplay that. But how we go about ministering and healing shouldn't be convoluted. But we often say to people, check after the initial prayer, check. And if nothing seems to have happened, something happens every time you pray, pray, but If nothing seems to have happened in front of your eyes, pray again. And I love watching people because first prayer is like simple, kingdom of God come, healing come. Anything happen? No. Second prayer, Jesus, we love you. You are the Lord. You're suddenly like, the prayer is now like 10 minutes because they're thinking the first one was too short. No, that's not how it works. You don't have to get more and more long-winded in order to somehow earn his favor. That's not what's happening in delay. Her prayer gets shorter. She's not saying, let me impress you. She's trusting his heart. See, when we grow more long-winded, our toxic beliefs are bubbling up to the surface, which is somehow my prayer earns me the right to see a breakthrough rather than his mercy has already done that for me. This is simple ways to check ourselves. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. I check myself on this. What are we leaning on? See, we all laughed when I talked about my wonderful child who talks about, I'm powerful. But but we all have moments where we're leaning on something that is about us, we think, rather than about him. Following Jesus, all of it, Every single moment of it needs to be leaning on him. If you think at any point that it's about what you can do, you've lost it. It's all based on his mercy and kindness. Her prayer gets shorter the second time. Help me. And he answered, 
oh, we're getting into tricky territory. Stay with me. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, really quickly. This is actually a really helpful verse if we're ever talking about um, enemy oppression of Christians. This is actually really helpful because the children's bread is deliverance, which means that actually God wants to bring freedom to his body as well as to everybody else, okay? That's a long conversation for another time. Let's just sidestep that quickly. But in this moment, what he's doing is calling her something that wasn't out of the ordinary. The, The Jews referred to themselves as the children of God, They were the children of Israel. They they knew very clearly who they were. But Canaanites were often referred to as dogs by the Jews. So what is happening here is effectively Jesus is using uh, a racially charged slur uh, that was one that she would have heard many, many times over. The reality is in Jewish law and in Jewish thinking, she was akin to an animal or property anyway because she was a woman. So Already, there's actually nothing unusual in this conversation from her perspective in terms of a Jewish man is speaking to her like she's nothing and using derogatory terms. She will have experienced that multiple times. The question is, is that authentic to the heart of who Jesus is? And I want to suggest you no. (laughs) And the reason I want to suggest that is everything else in this story is about him drawing something else out of others rather than him initiating something in and of himself, except that he mercifully went to find her. There's nothing in this story that would suggest to us that he actually is unwilling to be merciful to her. He's gone finding her. He's incredibly willing. He has intentionally put himself in her path. That tells us straight away that he wanted to heal the daughter. So what is going on? I think what's going on is essentially a baiting of everyone involved. It's almost like he's saying, isn't it true? Isn't it so that they're children and you're a dog? Isn't this the way it is? Isn't this the belief system? He's baiting the disciples as much as he's baiting her. Isn't this so, guys? He, what is he doing? He's drawing from them what they actually think, all of them. Isn't this the case? And he's waiting for someone to say, no, this isn't how it works. And look at her faith. Yes, Lord, yet even. Now, this is the beautiful thing about her. She could have said, no, that's not the case. And I believe he would have um, positively dealt with her. But she is actually willing to adopt even the most horrible, offensive thing against her to form an argument still for his mercy. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh woman, Great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. This is the only time, the only time recorded in this book of Matthew where someone else essentially wins the argument against Jesus. Do you think he was surprised? Do you think he was shocked that she won? No, he was setting her up to win. 
That's the point. He knew what was in her as much as he knew what was in the disciples. And he's drawing it out, drawing it out to heal them from their brokenness, drawing it out from her to put the gold in her on display. He's having this conversation that is laden with offense if she wanted to be offended. We live in a world that is desperate to be offended. I think it makes people feel like they're really alive. Because if I'm hurting over something, then I'm at least feeling something. The church is becoming like that. We, we are so quick to get offended over things. Julian often says, there's a reason why it's said you take offense. It's because you, it's an active choice. Offense is not given. You take it. Offense wasn't given here. She had the choice. Do I stand here and go, how dare you? You're just like the rest of them. Turns out you're not the son of David after all. I'm out. I came to you looking for compassion. You suck. (laughs) She could have. She could have. She'd be well within her rights. Our churches are littered with people who are doing that all the time. We might be people who are doing that all the time. I might be that person. But what does she do? She is so certain that he is the one who is passionately willing that she's like, I don't know if she fully knew what was going on here. I don't know if she had such a sense. But whatever it is, she's like, it's kind of weird that you did that. I'm just going to sidestep that. She's confident. She's absolutely confident. There's no question in her mind whether he is merciful or not, whether he is willing or not. The disciples have that question because they still think there are groups of people that are out and there are others that are in and of course they belong to the inn. But in her mind, she knows she's nothing. She's nobody. She's been told that all her life, but she's not there because she's confident of herself. She's there because she's confident of him. And no amount of this weird sparring that she probably didn't even fully get happening is stopping her. She is unoffendable with him. You ignore me? I'm going to go weird. I'm just going to keep asking. You say something that's really actually kind of rude and mean. Okay, I'm going to keep asking. Like there's a simplicity here. You know, Jesus says in, I think it's in Luke 10. I might be wrong on it. It's somewhere in the gospel of Luke. It's a great book. Read it all. You'll find this verse eventually. It talks about, It's childlike faith that it sees entry into the kingdom. There is a reason that it's faith like children's that allows us to enter into encountering God. And it's because there's a simplicity to that faith. There's just an all or nothing reality about it. Listen, when my kids ask me for breakfast and I say nothing, they're not like, (gasps) Is this the day where she starves us? 
They're entirely confident that their mother will feed them. <laughs> then when they come and moan at me while I'm putting the pillow over my head, pretending they're not there. Mom, I'm hungry. And I say, go away. They don't go, is this the day where she's going to starve us? They go, oh, come on, mom, you're so ridiculous. And they pull the covers off me and they jump on me and they yell in my ear until I have no choice but to get up because I'm up now anyway. Why? Because they're confident. Because they know through and through, mama will not starve me. It's very simple, right? There's no complexity in their thinking to whether breakfast is on offer or not because mom is weird or whatever. Right? They are so simple in their thinking about me. Now, thank God about that. <laughs> I'm pleased that my children never think that I'm going to starve them. But why do we think that way about God? The first ignoring and we go, is this the day he fails me? The first answer that doesn't make sense to us and we go, is, is this, this is the mean streak. I knew it was in there somewhere. Despite what scripture says, despite what so many testimonies tell us, despite what all of these verses, no, 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 no. I knew it was in there somewhere. Why? Because in us is some faulty belief about his nature. He's drawing it out because he wants to heal it. She's entirely unoffendable. We read earlier in Matthew 15 how the Pharisees were offended. In fact, this whole kind of run of chapters in Matthew, Matthew 11, 13, and 15 all carry moments of offense with Jesus. Jesus didn't seem to mind causing offense. Uh, notice he wasn't looking for it. Sometimes Christians are just annoying people and they're like, it's for the sake of the gospel. I'm like, no, that's just... Don't irritate people. That's just different. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're that person. I apologize. You're deeply loved. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is, we're seeing him walk through life with people. Matthew 11, uh, there's this whole conversation with John the Baptist who is still stuck in prison and, uh, and will die there. Um, and John the Baptist, who... We know this from the beginning of, let's go to the beginning of Luke's gospel. John the Baptist sees Jesus and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God. He, he knows without a shadow of a doubt. He spotted Jesus. He knows who he is. He has an argument with him about whether they, he's going to baptize him or not because he knows he's not worthy, right? He's announced it to everybody. His whole ministry, John the Baptist is saying, look at Jesus. Behold, everybody, this is it. Then John ends up in prison. And he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the Christ? What's going on here? Like, we established that a while ago. In fact, you established that a while ago, John. You were the one who announced it to everybody. What's happening here? And Jesus says to John's disciples, go and tell him what you see, that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking. 
He, what is he, he's quoting messianic prophecies from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord will anoint me. And Isaiah prophesies, the blind will see, the lame will walk. But Jesus leaves one bit of that prophecy out, and it's that the captives will be set free. Instead, Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Why was he saying to John? <sighs> this is where the mystery box grows, right? I don't know why John wasn't set free. I don't know why that needed to happen the way it happened. But Jesus is basically saying, John, I am exactly who you think I am. I am he. And I'm full of compassion and goodness and kindness. And you will be blessed if you're not offended by what I don't do right now. That's the first offense moment. You get to Matthew 13. Jesus goes to Nazareth and people start saying, isn't he, isn't this the carpenter's son? We grew up with this guy. How dare he teach us? And it's one, the one place where Jesus doesn't do many miracles because of their lack of faith. It says that they were offended by him because he assumed to have authority. See, human reasoning gets offended with Jesus. We're doing the math on you. It doesn't make sense. I'm offended. If you try to apply human reasoning to the promises of God over your life, you will end up in offense. Don't do it. Human reasoning can't do the math. It won't work. It will lead you to offense. So we've got 11, disappointment with God leading to offense. You've got 13, human reasoning leading to offense. You've got 15, Pharisees, traditions, religious ways leading to offense. And then you've got this woman dirty, nobody, enemy, rubbish, dog, or so they said, who leans in completely adamant that she will not get offended by him. She'll just keep sidestepping because she has got her eyes fixed on the mercy of Jesus. I believe he's inviting us to be a people like that. Can I explain to you why life sometimes goes so horribly wrong that you're wondering where on earth he is? No. Do I wish it didn't happen? Yes. Have I experienced that more times than I wish? Yes. Do I wish the longer I was a Christian, the less mysterious God would appear to me? Also yes. It's so easy to get offended with him because he doesn't think like us. He thinks better than us. But there are so many temptations in the journey of life to believe that he's not caring enough or seeing us enough or willing enough. And yet these verses are screaming at us. I am passionately willing I'm drawing out belief systems that are not so. I want to heal them before I resolve everything else. I just love then that we go to Jesus healing the many. And then he says to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. I am unwilling to send them away hungry. There are so many moments where the enemy will make us believe that God is unwilling. We need to memorize this verse 
and let this verse become the mantra of our life. I know what he's unwilling to do. Only one thing. There is only one place in scripture where Jesus says he is unwilling to do something. What is it? To send away the hungry. That's it. That's it. The enemy will tell you he's unwilling to help you. The enemy will tell you he's unwilling to help those who are morally corrupt. The enemy will tell you he's unwilling to do X, Y, and Z. The enemy is lying. There is one place where Jesus is unwilling. He's unwilling to send away the hungry. Are you hungry? Then you're fine. Because the enemy will tell us in our moments of hunger, this is the day he's going to starve you. But remember my story about my kids' breakfast. If you take nothing away with you, take that away with you this week. And whenever you're tempted to question his heart, ask yourself, would Katya's kids think this is the day she's going to starve us? (laughs) There's so much we can learn from our children. If you're ever tempted to think that he is unwilling to help, Go back to Matthew 15. Recalibrate. There's only one thing he's unwilling to do, which is to send someone away when they're hungry. Blessed are those who are hungry, for they will be filled. Matthew 5. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.